Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Henry Hall. A loyal husband to his wife and father to three children who made an honest living as a bootmaker So devoted was Henry that he would willingly sacrifice everything to provide for his family, whether his energy, his health, and even his sanity. Murder Marley's research using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 151, No Way Out for Henry Hall. Today, I'm standing on Dean Street in Soho, W1. Ten doors south from the medical school, where London's Burke and Hare hawked a dead boy's fresh corpse for cold hard cash. Three doors east of the senseless beating of baby Richard, we're just to the rear of Dutchlayer's death, and five doors north of the suspicious so-called suicide of the supposedly Peruvian priest. Coming soon to Murder Mile, the book... On the corner of Bouchier Street, at 65 Dean Street, currently sits Goldcrest, a post-production facility. Soho was once Britain's film and TV capital. But as most companies failed to adapt to the changes in the industry, some moved out and some were forced out, but most simply went bust. I worked nearby at two such companies, In one meeting, our producer barked, Let's make a film about a disabled African football team who are all dying of AIDS. 
You know, the kind of big bucks blockbuster that audiences are simply crying out for. In another, being too thick to be original and desperate to leech off the fame of car modification show Pimp My Ride, for an hour solid, the creatives, in inverted commas, piped up with novel twists, like Pimp My Bedsit, Pimp My Dog, Pimp My Anus, Pimp My Pimp, and Pimp My Celebrity Chef Patio Makeover from Hell. But that is true of almost every industry. Fashions change, and if they don't keep up, they die. Back in 1887, 65 Dean Street was a four-story lodging house inhabited by six working-class families. It was clean, safe, and occupied by skilled tradespeople, such as tailors, glove makers, seamstresses, cobblers, and bootmakers. On the second floor lived the Hall family. They were good, decent, and loving. Like most families, they struggled to make ends meet as times were tough. But when times became too tough to bear, Henry's desperation would turn this doting dad into a danger. As it was here, on Friday the 8th of June, 1877, seeing no way out from his abject poverty, that Henry did the unthinkable. Only what drove him to kill were his feet and his teeth. Love can be a powerful driving force. It can make the rational irrational. It can drive the sane insane. And it can even turn the most loving and mild-mannered of men into a homicidal monster. In 1840, Henry was born in the Shropshire town of Ludlow. As one of several sons to a bootmaker and a seamstress, he was blessed with an unremarkable upbringing being burdened by no more trials and tribulations than any other in that era. Built from sturdy country stock, he was raised with pride in his blood, and like the long line of men before him, he toiled to provide a good life for his loved ones. As a person, everyone described him as kind and attentive, with never a bad word said against him. In 1868, he married Jane, a woman six years his senior who hailed from Chalfont in Buckinghamshire. Being like two peas in a proverbial pod, they never spoke ill of each other, nor slept with a curse word spilt. As being hardworking and level-headed, they always found a way to resolve their issues. Therefore, it's unsurprising that Mr. and Mrs. Hall would raise four children together. In 1869, having moved to Paddington in West London, their first daughter Jane was born. In 1871, the family moved to 11 King Street in Soho, and it's here that three more children were born. Frank in 
Annie in 1873 and Louisa in 1876. With six mouths to feed, Mr. and Mrs. Hall held down several jobs. With Jane working as a charwoman, a cleaner to a few well-to-do households, often starting at 8 a.m. and not finishing until midnight. Being a bootmaker, as Henry plied his trade in the second of their two-roomed lodging, a childminder helped rear their children so Henry could focus on his business, which was their main income. In the winter of 1876, the family moved into two smaller rooms on the second floor of 65 Dean Street, with a living space for this family of six at the rear, and next to a large bed, Henry's tools of his trade. It wasn't much, but it was home. And although Henry and Jane were often exhausted, even if it meant they didn't eat or sleep, everything they did was for the sake of their children. As with an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a toddler, times were hard, but they made it work. Raised as a skilled craftsman, the family's main income had always come from Henry. Henry was a bootmaker, not a cobbler, not a clogger, nor a cordwainer. There is a big difference, and legally, although to a layman they all make shoes, to the industry they were all very different. In 1395, the Mayor of London decreed that each profession must form their own guild, which held each craftsman to a set of strict rules and regulations to ensure that competition was evenly spread, but it also kept those of a lower rank in their place, in this very old, very traditional industry. The guilds were set out like this. Cordwainers were shoemakers who made new shoes from new leather, meaning their products were always of the highest quality. Henry was a bootmaker who made practical boots for working men and women which could only be made from second-hand leather. Below Henry were the cloggers, who could not make boots out of any type of leather, only wood, twine and ceramics. And at the very bottom, cobblers were not permitted to make any shoes of any type, ever. Their job was to repair. In order to work, you had to be a member of a guild, at which you had to pay your dues. If you didn't pay your dues, you didn't work, and if you didn't work, you didn't eat. Simple as that. And although many craftsmen at all ends flouted the rules, Henry never jeopardized his family by taking that risk. Being a bootmaker, it may seem as if Henry was in a better position than most, and he was. But he could only succeed if there was more demand and less competition. 
boot making was an ancient skill, handed down from father to son, which had changed very little in the last few centuries. But the industry was about to get a very rude awakening, owing to innovation. The 1870s were a difficult time for traditional craftspeople, especially in Soho, as not only were they surrounded by the high fashion stores of Oxford Street and Regent Street, but also times had changed. By the mid-1800s, shoemaking had gone from a cottage industry to a mechanized production. It began in 1812, when Marc Brunel invented the automatic sole fastener to supply military boots during the Napoleonic War. In 1853, during the Crimean War, Thomas Crick patented the riveting machine, which maximized production, and introduced steam-powered rolling and cutting machines, which precisely cut hardened leather to an exact template. By 1864, Lyman Blake had perfected the shoe-stitching machine, and so with cutting, rolling, fastening, and stitching no longer done by hand, By the late 1870s, the process of mass-producing boots or shoes to the people was almost entirely mechanized. Shoes were now cheaper, there was a greater choice, and the size and quality had been standardized. For the people, it was a win-win. But for skilled working-class craftsmen like Henry, who still made boots by hand, as his forefathers had done for centuries, it would be impossible to keep up, or even to keep going. Through the bitter winter and sodden spring of 1877, Henry struggled. As a 37-year-old married father of four, he had earned an honest wage as a bootmaker for almost all of his life. It was all he had ever done, and owing to the guild's rules, it was all he was allowed to do. But now, struggling to cover even just the basics like paying the rent or putting food on the table, he wasn't eating or sleeping, as the endless worry plagued his mind. For the last four months, Henry had been suffering with chronic toothache. Like many people in this era, his mouth looked more like a box of brown broken biscuits than a smile. But now these unsightly stumps bled red with profuse frothy rivers, and his impacted jaw protruded like he had been thumped. Worried sick with money troubles, even if he could eat or sleep, which he couldn't. The pain meant that he rarely got a good night's sleep, making him unusually moody. He was never nasty, cruel, or violent, but he would sometimes snap for no reason, only to apologize with his head hung in shame. He could have gone to the dentist, but with Britain still two years from Parliament passing the Dentist Act which established a register and required that all dentists were trained and qualified to a minimum standard. 
Many barbers moonlighted as dentists with little or no experience or training. So bad was British oral health that often patients in their teens to twenties would willingly have their teeth ripped out and replaced with a false set made of wood or ceramics. The idea being that it saved on pain, decay, any future dental costs, and it remained a popular 21st birthday gift up until the 1940s. But with the procedure being risky, painful, and each tooth costing five shillings apiece, Henry couldn't afford this. Besides, as a good, decent man, as bad as his pain got, his priority was always his family. With his wife Jane, plagued by shards of festering stumps, dangling from her puffy red ridge of swollen gums like blooded stalactites, being riddled with a pain so intense it caught her breath and made her question her own sanity. The meagre funds he could scrape together were used to cure her, not him. This was a rational decision, as if she couldn't work, they would all starve. But that would be the last rational decision he would ever make. To try to pacify the pain, for those who could afford it, they were prescribed cocaine. But for those who couldn't, they took laudanum. A legal, but potentially lethal and highly addictive poison, concocted from a 10% solution of opium and alcohol, which was used to treat pain, insomnia, and nerves. As a reddish-brown liquid with a very bitter taste, when given to babies to suppress a chesty cough, many parents would disguise its retch-inducing essence with spices or tea. A safe dosage was just four to six drops in a glass of water, and this would be enough to induce a feeling of rest and euphoria. But by the mid-1800s, with accidental overdoses becoming all too frequent, leading to respiratory depression, hypoxia, coma and death, and laudanum, the drug of choice for the suicidally inclined, although it could be purchased without a prescription, as it would be up until the 1970s, chemists were instructed to follow two simple rules. They must insist that each customer has a valid excuse. Oh, I've got a toothache. My child won't sleep. My wife's back is killing her. And only then would a very specific dosage be provided by a pipette. Thank you, sir. That will be one penny. It wasn't a foolproof system but it had saved lives. By Wednesday the 6th of June 1887, just two days before, Henry was a physical and emotional wreck. With his impacted gums throbbing like he'd gone eight rounds with a heavyweight, and every time his heart thumped, 
A rush of blood made his deformed face feel like it was about to burst open. This incessant thrumming, every second of every minute, was one of the worst tortures Henry had endured. Looking little more than a frail ghost, with bloodshot eyes perched on top of a thin streak of grey sallow skin, his words were unintelligible, his hands were shaky, and once again, he had become unusually rude. It was rare that Henry ever lost his temper, but having shouted at his kids for barely uttering a peep, and having spat some truly foul words at his beloved wife of nine good years, all because he hadn't the pennies to pay his dues at the bootmaker's guild, and worried about the dire consequences this would inflict. He snapped. But again, he was never violent or cruel, and as a thick slick of quivering tears flooded his tired eyes, as always, Henry's heart fell heavy with regret, and he apologized. I'm sorry. I... 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 I don't... I'm sorry. Henry Hall was trapped in a vicious circle which wasn't of his making. Unable to work, he couldn't earn, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. And so the pain continued. Working harder, Jane scraped by six pennies to help him out, which left him with a very fateful choice. To pay his dues to the guild, or to buy some drugs for his pain. But unable to make a rational decision, Henry chose to do neither. The same day that he snapped, Henry walked into Mr. Hartnell's chemist shop at 7 Tichborne Street, just off Great Windmill Street, and ordered an eighth of a teaspoon worth of laudanum, declaring, It's for my toothache. With his speech slurred, his eyes sunken, and his jaw bulging like a rotting sack of offal, it was clear to the assistant that his need was legit. As Henry pulled out a small vial, marked with a crow, and poison scrawled in Henry's own hand, the chemist dispensed enough laudanum to suppress a week's worth of pain. He issued a stern warning. Four to six drops in a glass of water once a day, no more. And having written up the purchase in the poison book, Henry paid him two pennies. Henry could have taken the laudanum right there and then, and eased his pain. Only his frazzled brain was elsewhere. A short while later, he stumbled into Cooper & Co, a chemist's shop at 20 Moore Street, just off Old Compton Street, and placed his order, slurring, It's for my toothache. Pulling out a second vial, Marked and labelled correctly, the chemist dispensed a drachm and a scruple, roughly an eighth of a teaspoon of laudanum, stated, Four to six drops in water, no more. 
wrote it up in the poisons book, which no governing body was overseeing, so the exercise was prone to abuse, and Henry paid it two pennies. Henry could have been pain-free within minutes. Only this good man had taken a very bad turn. On Thursday the 7th of June, just one day before, Henry staggered into Crow's Chemist's at 49 Prince Street at the bottom of Wardour Street. Still wincing with pain, having not touched a drop. It's for my tooth. He popped out a vial, was warned, the purchase was noted, and Henry paid him two pennies. Henry now had enough laudanum to end his pain forever and his life. Only seeing no way out, it wasn't his pain he was trying to erase. At 8am on Friday the 8th of June 1877, Jane headed out for yet another 16-hour shift as a charwoman. With 8-year-old Jane, 6-year-old Frank, 4-year-old Annie and 18-month-old Louisa left at home. As per usual, their neighbour, Mrs Mary Tice, popped in every so often so Henry could focus on making his boots. The children were well behaved. They played, but they didn't disturb their dad. And having kept their energy up with a cup of tea and a slice of bread and treacle for lunch, Mary Tice saw nothing unusual. The time was roughly 2.30pm. Their eldest daughter Jane would later state, Father came into the room. We were running about with a ball. We were rather noisy and he told us to not make such a racket, but he never said why. My mother had left a teapot on the table and from his workroom, my father pulled a bottle. It was a bottle they'd seen amongst his things many times before. One he himself had drunk from to make himself feel well. And now, this very bottle, which held the contents of three purchases from three different chemists, was held in the hand of their beloved father. A good, kind man, who they all trusted. Into the remnants of the morning's cold tea, Henry poured the reddish-brown liquid. The baby was playing with us, Jane would state, of the little mite who was barely the size of a small bundle of rags. He took her into the back room. When he brought her back, I think I saw some sick on her pinafore. Laying his youngest on their shared bed, as his head thrummed louder, the baby began to wail. Only its cry was a tear-soaked sob which grew quieter and fainter, as her little life slowly ebbed away. 
being unusually grumpy. Although their father was never one to strike them for misbehaving, not wanting to upset him any further, they did as he said. Four-year-old Annie was next. She did not like it. She said it was nasty stuff, but my father promised her a penny if she drank it, so she did. And never being one to turn down a shiny penny, Frank was next. Feeling woozy, and with a trickle of sick spewing down their chests, all three children lay on the bed. And as Jane, his eldest daughter, stared into her dad's dead soulless eyes, I told him I did not want any. Being bright, she wouldn't have supped from this bitter cup if it had been offered by anyone else. But as this was her father, a man she could never believe for a single second had an ounce of hate in his heart or would ever wish her dead. I drank from the same cup. It tasted nasty and I was sick. And as Jane lay beside her sickening siblings, Henry sat motionless, as aside from the endless thrumming inside his head, the only sound which filled the room was the choking as his children lay dying. But again, never being a violent or cruel man, as a slick of tears flooded his tired eyes and Henry's heart fell heavy with regret. He apologized and ran out, sobbing, I'm sorry, I, I'll, I'll fetch mother. At 3 p.m., Jane returned home to find her eldest vomiting into a bucket and the silent and seemingly motionless forms of her youngest lying on the bed their breathing only slight. Aided by Mrs. Tice, she dashed her dying babies to Dr. Clark's at 23 Gerard Street. And with their pupils like pinpoints and smelling the bitter stench of laudanum on their breath, he administered an emetic and rushed the four innocents to Charing Cross Hospital. As each child clung to a very thin sliver of life. Poverty had driven their doting father to murder them. In an exhausted state of confusion, he believed he was doing the right thing to spare them from starvation. And although his poverty had been the overriding reason that Henry had made this irrational decision, it was also the reason they survived. Had he poisoned himself, he would definitely be dead. But being so broke that he couldn't afford enough laudanum to kill them all, on Thursday the 14th of June, one week later, the last of his four children were discharged from the hospital, having made a full recovery. The next day, 
he was charged at Marlborough Street Police Court with his solicitor pleading, This is a very painful case, and I appealed to the magistrate for leniency. As all the children had survived, and Henry Hall was widely regarded by those who knew him as a loyal husband and a loving father. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 25th of June 1877, he was found guilty of administering a poison with the intent to murder. And just as poverty had saved their necks, it too would save his. As having murdered no one, he escaped the death penalty and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Being a good mother, Jane moved her children a few doors away to 13 Little Dean Street. And although she never remarried, all four of her children went on to live long and to live well. But they would never again see their beloved father. As having served his sentence at Pentonville Prison, Henry Hall died in the spring of 1884, age 43, in the St. George's workhouse. When he died, he didn't have a single penny to his name. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, if you like a little quiz, a lot of waffle, the sound of a kettle brewing, and a cake which you can't see or smell, stay tuned till after the break for more info on this case in Extra Mile. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Grace Soria and Pam Kitchens. Thank you for supporting the show, it's very much appreciated. Plus a thank you to Nicholas Smith for the bag of chocolatey goodies sent to my P.O. box, yum! And of course, everyone who leaves lovely reviews of Murder Mile on your favourite podcast app. It really is very much appreciated. Murder Mile was research written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Book's Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Wait, we're done. Oh, Christ. Oh, Lord. Lord to Lordy. Oh. Hello, everyone. Morning, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. How are we all? We all good and healthy and well and happy and uh, everyone had breakfast. Oh, what did I have for breakfast? I had some, uh, I, I had some chia batter with uh, olives. <sighs> and in a second, I'm going to have a cake. Of course, I'm going to have a bloody cake. That's what I do. That's my, that's my thang. That's my thang. Let me just open up some uh, windows a little bit. Oh, look, sunlight. It's really foggy out today. It's one of those days where it's, it was bitterly cold last night. Hang on, I'm just going to put the kettle on. It was bitterly cold last night, uh, and hence it's outside right now. It's all foggy and horrible. Let's put that in there. Forgot to get my cup. Get my. Uh, I'm going to try out one of these three-in-one coffee things. It was it was in the package that Nicola sent me very kindly, and I'm, I've eaten everything now. It took me. I would say it probably took me about two days because I'm a bit of a pig. Uh, but in there is, this is a, a Nescafe Frothy Chino, three in one. So apparently I don't have to do anything with it. Ooh, one foot has gone really cold. Got one really cold foot. Anyway, that's on. Uh, I've got myself a nice bakery tart that I'm going to eat from the bakery up the road. They do some really nice ones. Last night I had some, uh, uh, I didn't know what they were. I just said the chocolate things, and I had them, and they were uh, chocolate truffles, and they were very nice, very nice, anyway. But yeah, it's gone cold outside, so last night, I thought to myself, hmm, let's test out the the, the, the heater, because I've got a, a wood and coal-burning stove uh, in my in my main cabin where I sit and do all my work, and I thought, let's just put in some stuff in there, just to test that it's that it's still good that I've, I've cleaned out the chimney I, you've got to make sure that it doesn't smoke doesn't billow back in which can do and uh, co2 and things like that and you've got to make sure that everything's safe and fine so i've put some stuff in there uh, like some logs and some uh, kindling and stuff and i thought yeah i just shove that and just check that it works and then it would seem to be going well so i put in a little bit more and then i put, <laughs> and then i put in some coal then i thought i'll oh, bollocks to it i'll just have a fire so i had my first i literally i normally wait till december but it's gone so cold in the evenings like really bitterly cold i just thought to myself i've got enough coal and logs to last until doomsday so pff, let's just do it let's just put a little fire on and it was nice it wasn't too hot uh i've just had it I've just blasted it up a bit so it's still a little bit warm in here and it's nice and it stops the condensation as well, which is good. 
Uh, but when it gets to real winter, I've got my hot water bottles. I've just found them again and going, oh, it's winter time. I have my big hot water bottle and my little hot water bottle. It's very nice. So what else is going on? Uh, outside, coots are, um, there's a little canoe outside that they like to sit on, a little green canoe. And they're, they're fat coots and they it's starting to sink. And they're sitting on the front of it and it's kind of, uh, it's tipping the canoe slightly and it's filling up with water, but the coots don't care. And they just sit there and they have little fights between them as coots do because they're a bit thick. Uh, also in front of me is a little hedge and behind it is normally a little tabby cat. And the tabby cat peeps through the hedge and he, he keeps, he, she keeps staring at the two swans swimming past, which is always good fun. It's nice to see them. Uh, but either way, I'm just kind of still stuck here a little bit. The, the lock it's going to take a couple of weeks to fix. Just get in the kettle. Uh, give this a stir. Oh, yeah, look at that. Requires nothing, no effort. There we go. Give that a little bit of a stir. Seems quite thick and frothy. Bakewell tart, ready to go. Look at that. Oh, well, I'm saying look at that, but you can't see it, can you? This is a bit pointless. Uh, it's nice. It's probably about an inch high. I'm probably about inch high yeah, and probably about three or four inches wide just got a nice glass of cherry i know everyone doesn't like glass of cherries but i do i like the sweet stuff uh yeah the lock's not going to be open for a while so i'm stuck here for a bit but it's not too bad i'm near ish town i'm near ish i'm in between two good bakeries i'm near a petrol station which is good because i have a gen because because i can't connect up to our mains i have to use a generator if i need power uh what else is going on uh, just keeping busy really keeping busy plowing on with the murder mile book which is all very exciting um hoping i'm hoping that should be ready by summertime summer summer summertime that'd be exciting so i'm working through that there's a uh, uh, lots of interesting cases that have never made it to Murder Mile before. Uh, there will be some cases that we've covered before, but they're different angles on it. Uh, just, just, just lots of exciting stuff. So uh, yeah, we're ploughing through that. So long way to go, a lot of work to do, but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the work. So that's all good. Um, if you're a patron subscriber, I will be doing snippets of that. So as I, I'm, I'm doing all the research, finishing off the research now, but. Uh, as I start writing it, I will be doing snippets on Patreon. So, you know, if you want to subscribe to Patreon, you can hear those in the future. There's that something different. Um, um, this is kind of redundant in a way. Uh, episode 149, the Jane Andrews, uh, the abuse of Jane Andrews part two didn't appear on uh, a lot of places in iTunes. We're having a bit of a problem at the moment that I, I, Acast, who I subscribe, who do are my podcast host, uh, have migrated oh, the podcast to a new feed. Um, it went through a iTunes on the Thursday. Hence, everyone who listens to iTunes seems to seems to have got it. But then they it disappeared off iTunes. But it is still in there. It's in the feed. It's just it's not appearing in the library, which is really annoying. So I'm stuck in the middle of a real argument between Acast and iTunes both of them saying well it's not our fault but it's one of their faults or both of their faults and they're not admitting to it so I'm stuck in the middle so I know it's frustrating for people out there saying oh where's this episode I want my episode um it's it's even more annoying for me because don't forget if if um if people that can't listen to an episode I lose money this is how I make my income so it's really frustrating especially for, for 
Acast and iTunes who are kind of going, oh, it's not really our fault. It's like, yeah, but I'm the one who's suffering the consequences. So hopefully it, uh, it works. As of tomorrow, when I'm recording this, episode 150 goes out. I hope that makes it. Uh, if not, this one might be, might not make it either. Either way. Uh, anyway, iTunes is a sack of shit. Uh, I hate it. I really do. So um, if you listen to uh, your podcast via iTunes, maybe have a backup. I have two. I have backup uh, uh, podcast apps. You don't need to subscribe for any, everything. You just, you know, if, if one doesn't work, you can just go like I have Podcast Addict. I also have Podbean uh, and and Google. Uh, I've got Acast, obviously, as well. And if I can't listen to one episode on there, I just go fine. I'll use a different app. Do you know? You don't need. You don't need to be loyal to one app. You can just if you if you need to listen to an episode, just go fine. There's about a billion apps out there. I'll use a different one. I've got three, and it doesn't cost you a penny either way. So right, okay, that was exciting, wasn't it? It was dull and exciting. Let's do the quiz. Let's have a slurp of. Uh... It's frothy coffee chino. Mm. Right, uh, question number one. What county and or town did Henry come from? Question two. Three of Jane and Henry's children were born in Soho, but where was the eldest born? Mm. Are these difficult questions? I don't know. Two of them I had to come up with at the last second because I forgot I forgot to do them. Uh, question three. Henry was a bootmaker, but what could a cobbler... Read the words, Michael. Henry was a bootmaker, but what could a cobbler do that Henry couldn't? Question four. Which is the nearest murder case to 65 Dean Street? These were mentioned at the very start of the show. Question five. What percentage of opium uh, is laudanum made of? Question six. Which two wars helped revolutionise the mass production of boots? It's all been very exciting. I, I had to do a... I had to, uh, compile a history of boot making in the 18th century in order to write this episode but it was interesting i i think that's the thing it's interesting to know i think there's too many podcasts out there i mean there's too many podcasts out there anyway but there's too many out there where people are just so focused on oh the murder how did the murder do it what knife did he use how did he do the killing all that kind of shit whereas it's it's massively important to learn about motivation what drives a normal sane loving caring person to be pushed to such such extremes and if you understand where they're coming from and you understand what their stresses are do you know it's it, it really does make sense to to kind of do a history of especially given the fact that he makes his living out of being a bootmaker so you have to understand where he's coming from Ah, so that was interesting. Uh, question: Where did I get to? Question seven: What's the difference between a cordwainer and a bootmaker? Uh, question eight: What is the name of Henry and Jane's youngest child? Question nine: What did the kids have for lunch on the day of the attempted murder? And question 10, what symbol was on the vial of poison? Ooh, exciting. Right, we'll answer those very shortly. Let's dive into some stuff. Um, So, 
and we'll dive into some stuff and I'll, I'll try not to ruin some questions i've been good recently but you know sometimes it does happen uh so uh according to the 1871 census uh they were all living on king street in soho which is just off uh it's basically where charing cross road is now um this is also the same area this was the last place that uh baby charlie chergwin had his last proper bed this was before uh, his mum tried to take him to the to the first workhouse which rejected him um in 1871 henry uh and their children i can't say their names because that's part of the quiz question uh they were living in a room uh they also had a 53 year old lodger called Catherine collins from dublin um in this era you could have if you rented out a lodging and you were paying like you were paying like so many shillings per week for you and your family to live there you it was your right you had the right to kind of get a lodger into your room even though you're a lodger in that room so that's why they had a lodger there as well there were two other families in the house edwin and henry collins who were father and son cook uh, one was a cook one was an errand boy there was also a single mum called sarah holman who was an envelope folder fascinating uh she had a, she was a single mum with a young daughter and a young son um uh, uh, by 1877 they had moved to 65 Dean Street in Soho uh, unfortunately uh, all of these buildings have been long since been demolished uh, Bouchier Street which later became Little Dean Street which was originally Milk Alley uh, we heard about that with the the, the uh, I almost said the name of the uh, person who was murdered um, we heard about this story before unfortunately all of these buildings have long since been demolished there was a massive um, I think it, there was a V1 rocket that hit Old Compton Street, which you'll learn more about in uh, Murder Mile. Murder Mile, the book. I might have to do the book uh, more in the podcast from now on. Uh, there's a V1 rocket that hit there, uh, obviously, during World War Two. It blew out a large portion of the, the kind of section near where Dutch Layer's house is. That survived. Uh, but unfortunately, it almost decimated Bouchier Street. So almost all of the buildings there are entirely, entirely brand new or as near as. Uh, so these buildings where 65 Dean Street was don't exist anymore. So unfortunately, but uh, on Patreon, I will post some pictures for you so you can have a look at it. When I was researching into Henry's life, obviously, I was going through all the genealogies and stuff like that to see where he came from and i came across a bootmaker called henry hall who was roughly the same age and i was like oh wow this is really ex- interesting and it was uh henry hall uh living over in windsor so not too far away you know about 20 miles 20 miles west ish um a bootmaker by special appointment to her majesty the queen and the hi- and his highness the prince of wales oh and i was like oh this is really exciting he's gone from being a country boy to being uh, a bootmaker to the Queen, and then all of a sudden he's living in Soho and he's impoverished. Unfortunately, not. There were there were two bootmakers exactly the same age at the same time, living in roughly the same area. Uh, so, and, and it's I was going to put it into the story about how you've got one Henry Hall who's doing incredibly well and one Henry Hall who's kind of struggling a lot. Um, the 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 big Henry Hall because he was a a. Um, not a bootmaker, but he was the other one that we're not allowed to talk about because that's part of the quiz question. He was doing incredibly, incredibly well because he was, he had all the best equipment and he had, you know, he could, he, he, it's all the hand stitching and all that. Do all the posh people love that? 
you know uh like most of us now like our shoes are all mass-produced mass-produced crap and the only things that really that kind of the slave labor that they have to do that they don't do any of the stitching they just stick the crap on and you know put the labels in and crap like that but some people still do have handmade shoes uh my dad has handmade shoes but only because he has he has dodgy feet but he did say ages ago he was like you should get a pair of handmade shoes because he said they don't cost much and he said it's like it's like wearing slippers outside he said he said they're just wonderful you know they're really comfortable uh and you, you can call them up anytime they have your measurements and they go can you make me a new pair of shoes and apparently apparently they're really nice uh but that's the difference uh so they're they're toothache um they all were suffering with toothache the kids not so much because they were kind of younger and their teeth were kind of you know still coming through and things like that uh you know kids teeth fall out every six seconds uh but uh mary uh mary uh henry and jane both were suffering with a kind of impacted toothache at the time uh, as mentioned at the time, I think I mentioned this in another episode that uh, people would often get their teeth ripped out if you could afford it and have them replaced with wooden teeth, which is why I think a lot of us kind of had grandparents who all kind of wore false teeth. And I always thought it was because, oh, when you get older, your teeth start falling out, but it's not. There was, in the 1920s, 30s and 40s, it was kind of a thing because tooth decay was quite kind of quite a bad thing especially as more sugar came into our diet and british people weren't that good at going to the dentist or looking after their teeth so many would just have their teeth ripped out and replaced with uh, either wooden or ceramic teeth uh um there is even even in 1899 dr moundsley of the chelsea hospital was still using a technique where he would uh, round the tooth to be drawn and fasten it with a strong piece of cat gut to the opposite end of which was fastened to a bullet uh with which uh it says a strong dose of powder he charged the pistol so therefore he used a gun being fired to rip a tooth out of a head and that was being done by dr mounty of the chelsea hospital lovely great uh but as you can appreciate, Henry doesn't have the money, hence uh, he really can't go to the doctors. Um, he, uh, their lives seem to have been a lot better a couple of years before. When they were in King Street, they seemed to be, have bigger rooms and enough of uh, a space that they could hire a lodger. But when they moved into Dean Street, these were smaller rooms they couldn't afford. They hadn't got the space to put a lodger in. Uh, he Henry also seemed at some point in the past to have had uh, access to, more access to Laudanum because his eldest daughter makes reference to the fact that she often saw bottles uh, similar to that in and around his workroom but he didn't seem to have much access to it recently so uh, we're not really to, we don't really think that he was kind of a a bit of a a dope addict at the time because everyone said he, you know he was a, a good decent man and he didn't seem off his tits all the time he just seemed to be struggling so he he obviously seemed to be struggling with his teeth for quite a while but he had him and his wife had access to kind of the drugs when they needed it but as kind of times got harder he he had less access to uh, laudanum uh uh, the attempt of the murder itself uh, most of the uh, evidence for this actually comes from the eldest daughter I think the quest 
I think her name is one of the questions, so I won't say it. But she was, she was only about eight years old. But she seemed to be the one who gave the most testimony. So pretty much everyone there was saying, you know, she's a, she's a, a smart girl, you know. She's very bright. So her testimony became the kind of the things that, uh, that the prosecution and the defence used a hell of a lot in this case. Uh, let's see what she said. Uh, he then gave me and Frank and Annie some stuff to drink. I don't know whether he gave any to the baby. Uh, she would later uh, say that he would. Uh, but of the three of us, uh, he first gave it to Annie. Uh, he, he actually gave it to the baby first. This took a... There were two kind of... She gave uh, evidence at the um, uh, the magistrate's court and the old Bailey. Uh, so they were able to clarify it a little bit better then. Uh, I saw my father pour the stuff uh, from the bottle into her cup. Annie said she did not like it. It was nasty stuff. Before my father gave it to her, he said he would give her a penny. Uh, in He had three bottles, I think. I think he put them in the back room. Frank, this is the uh, thing. Frank, who was, who was uh, their only son, asked his father to give him some as well. He seemed to see the other kids getting um, being given something uh, from a bottle and being given a penny, and he didn't want to miss out. Uh, so Frank was like, oh, yeah, I'll have some of that. Me, 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 me. Frank drank it and said he did not like it. He thought it was tea. Uh, after he took it, he was sick. Uh, my father next gave some to me. I told him I did not want any. He got it from the bottle and I drank it from the same cup. It tasted nasty and I was sick. My father saw me sick and gave me some cold tea. I think it was in the same cup. Uh, while I was sick, my father took my reading book and sat down in the armchair and read it. But not for long. Uh, he then put on his hat and went out and I did not see him again. Uh, this was the point when he realised that he'd uh, he'd made his mistake. Uh, I've got another bit down here where she goes, he realises what he's... Oh, here it is. Uh, uh, after he gave us the stuff, he said he was going to fetch mother. I'm sure of that. I don't know whether he, he said that at a police court. My mother came, my father fetched her. So obviously she's working multiple jobs and he uh so he went round all the different houses that she was working at uh to try and find her. Uh, it's it, I didn't put this in the story because it kind of throws it off a little bit, but it's kind of weird in a way. Um Henry didn't go and find a doctor. He didn't go and call the police. Uh he went to go and find mother. Uh, I know that she's she's the she seems to be the little bit more senior one in the in the family. She's the older one as well by about six years. So whether she's the one that rules the roost, I'm not too sure. But or whether he's more of a kind of a man child in his own way. But he didn't go. He didn't go and get a doctor at all. It was he. He got mother. Mother dealt with it all, and he kind of disappeared. Uh, we're not too sure what happened to him. He kind of he kind of just ran away. He was found. I'll, I'll get to this bit shortly. He was found uh, not too far away, but he was—he seemed to be hiding. Uh, so he went off and found her. He gave her the keys to the to the room. Uh, Mum went in uh, with Mary. Ann. Is this one of the questions? I don't think it is. Mary Ann Tice, who was the 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 neighbour, who was kind of the childminder. They went in there. They found all the kids in there, all very pale, all very sick, all spewing up. Um, uh, instantly they decided to take them to uh dr clark he was at 23 gerald street so gerald street is basically where where chinatown is now this is two streets away if that uh you basically go over shaspi avenue and it's there so it was like a two-minute walk uh so her and mary 
drag the kids the kids were barely able to put down their legs they, they were kind of stumbling as mentioned their eyes were kind of wide uh, sorry uh, like uh, pinholes they couldn't pick up their legs their breathing was really labored uh, interestingly all the kids had kind of were different in a way it's uh, uh the oh i've got to be careful because of this bloody quiz the eldest seemed to be the worst out of all of them when they took it to the doctor uh, the mum had actually bought one of the bottles with her and she showed it to the doctor and it had like you know the symbol which is one of the questions on it and henry had written poison on it but when he smelt it it smelled bitter he knew exactly what it was he looked at the kids he could see that their their eyes were like pinholes they were sleepy they couldn't use their legs um he said that uh uh even though a kind of a safe dose is between four and six drops he said uh anywhere between kind of uh 15 to 20 doses would be pretty bad but 30 to 40 would be absolutely fatal uh he said they definitely had a large dose but he couldn't calculate exactly how many doses they'd had because uh, he didn't know how much was in the bottle uh and it was mixed with tea as well um they were taken to Charing Cross Hospital which is uh not too far away this was where the uh right by the baby battery of Bedfordbury uh the resident med medical officer was Percy Steadman uh he said the little girl was brought in she was holding her mother's hand and staggering she was intoxicated the boy seemed very tired uh but nothing very noticeable I looked at their eyes. The pupils were both very contracted, especially the girls, which were contracted to pinpoints. Uh, that would be caused by a narcotic such as laudanum, and that would account for the intoxication. They both vomited perfectly clear saliva, um, which he, he said was uh, a natural reaction to the uh, poisoning. Uh, but they all seemed to do well. The little baby didn't seem to be that badly affected, so m maybe as mentioned because the baby had sick down its top maybe the baby basically just puked it up straight away or the father didn't give that much to the baby uh it was kind of the eldest daughter who seemed to be the worst off but uh all of them were discharged eventually by the 14th which is almost a week away and they all made a full recovery which is great um evidence was pretty simple they went police went into the room inspector turpu uh he went in and he saw the bottles of laudanum mark there he went round all of the you can see here coot being a noisy little bastard he's having a fight with the other one and going oh this is my canoe get away from my canoe little bastards uh yeah uh the the police went around all the uh the chemist shops around and obviously all the chemist shops were required to write the name of the person and how much uh laudanum they'd got and when they looked they were able to see that uh henry hall had been to three different places and he got um a drachm and a scruple um of uh laudanum from all of them so uh but uh and even though this was a lot he would have he could have killed himself with that it wasn't enough to kill all of his kids which was a blessing in a way uh pc alan reed uh policeman 113 uh, at about 8 p.m uh he found henry at the watch the watchorn public house on westminster bridge road uh he said he was quite sober uh 
and he told him that he, sh- he was going to take him to the police station, which he did. He put him in a cab and took him to Vine Street Police Station, which is just, it was at the back, between, uh, off Piccadilly Circus, between uh, Piccadilly, where kind of the Waterstones and BAFTA is, and then Regent Street. But it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. They demolished it years ago. Uh, but this, uh, Vine Street pops up a lot in Murder Mile, the book. I wonder if they can put that inflection on the book. That would be very nice. Uh, So, as mentioned, um, he was taken to uh, Mulberry Street Police Court the next day and charged. Uh, Everyone said that he was kind of quite depressed. He sat there. He didn't really say a lot. He couldn't talk to anyone. Uh, He was charged with attempting to poison his children. Uh, And, as mentioned, they... they, they, uh, uh, Mr Kitch, after admitting that this was a very painful case, made an earnest appeal to the magistrate to exercise his discretionary power by admitting the prisoner to bail. Um, the case not having assumed its original serious impact as the children had all recovered. Mr Newton said it was a case of attempted murder uh, with which the prisoner was charged. He thought he should not be doing his duty if he admitted the prisoner bail and refused the application. Uh, he then committed the prisoner for trial at the Old Bailey. Um, it's very simple trial. Uh, the the full charges were breaking the peace, wounding, and feloniously administering poison uh, to the eldest of the children uh, with intent to murder. Uh, as with the Denmark Place fire um, and the Blackout Ripper, uh, in this case... you if you've got multiple charges which are identical so uh, in this case he he tried to poison four different people you don't have to charge him with all four uh, poisoning cases you just charge him with one and the idea is he, if he's found guilty of the one therefore he's uh, um, guilty of all four which kind of makes it easier than doing four cases uh, and he was um, sentenced to 15 years penal servitude which he served at Pentonville prison just uh, over in King's Cross died not long later not long later he lasted another seven years um that's that uh what else uh did i write anything else oh yeah uh, so um the family moved a couple of doors away to 13 little dean street um the mother was still a charwoman. The kids, by that point, all seemed to be doing well. I checked a couple of years later, but they, they all seemed to have kind of drifted apart and gone about their own things. Um, Jane, the mother, uh, never remarried. She was the the head of the household. Uh, she had taken in a lodger called William Ring, who was about 40, which was roughly the same age as Henry, who was also a bootmaker uh, from Somerset. Uh, I did look at that and go, ooh, that's interesting, but uh, wondering whether they married, but they didn't. Uh, he was just a lodger. Um, so that was that. Let's do the answers to the questions. And while we do that, I'm going to have a swig. Mm. Mm. I don't know whether that works. Does that work? Coffee and a hot chocolate cappuccino mix. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Uh, questions. Okay. What county or town did Henry come from? He came from Ludlow in Shropshire. Not too far where I come from. And also where John Chalice, uh, Boise from uh, Only Fools and Horses came from. I know that because I worked with him many years ago and he was very lovely. Uh, question two. 
Uh, three of Jane and Henry's children were born in Soho. But where was the eldest born? The eldest was born in Paddington, West London. And that was uh, Jane. Question three. Henry was a bootmaker, but what could a cobbler do that he couldn't? According to the rules of the guild, uh, a cobbler could mend shoes, but Henry couldn't. Question four. Which is the nearest murder case to 65 B Dean Street? Almost said Bean Street. Which is the nearest murder case to 65 Dean Street? Almost let slip in the extra mile. Uh, it was the beating of baby Richard. <sighs> Literally is a couple of doors down. In fact, uh, Jane and her family moved a couple of doors nearer to where baby Richard was. But this was the, the difference is about 20, 25 years difference. So they wouldn't have known each other. Uh, question five. What percentage of opium is laudanum made of? It is a 10% solution. Uh, and you could still get laudanum uh, in the chemists without prescription up until the, I think it was, I think it was 71 or 72. Uh, uh, question six. Which two wars helped revolutionise the mass production of boots? It was the Napoleonic Wars of uh, 1812 and the Crimean War of 1851. I think it was 52 to 53. Uh, you appreciate lots of lots of soldiers. They needed thousands and thousands of pairs of boots ASAP. And they needed a high turnover because boots were being worn out fast. So uh, they needed a way to make boots fast. And uh, that's what did it. Um, question seven. What's the difference between a cord wainer and a boot maker? A cord wainer makes new shoes out of new leather. And a bootmaker uses second-hand or less high-quality leather. Um, question eight. What is the name of Henry and Jane's youngest? It was Louisa. Question nine. What did the kids have for lunch on the day of the attempted murder? Ooh, I just did a, a fart. Sorry about that. Cool. Um, question nine. What did the kids have for lunch? <laughs> Hopefully not that. What did the kids have for lunch on the day of the attempted murder? Uh, it was a slice of bread with treacle. Lovely. Question ten. Uh, what symbol was on the vial of poison? It was a crow. There you go. Exciting. So that's that. Hope you enjoyed uh, that uh, episode of Murder Mile. I hope uh, many of you got to listen to it. Uh, obviously, if you listen to this via iTunes, fuck's sake, give in. I give in with iTunes sometimes. Anyway, that's that. Hope you all enjoyed that. Have yourself a good week. Next week, we will be back with another episode, a single episode. Have a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye. 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 